What's up, Deep? Welcome to the Daily Science Report. Talking about a bunch of science news. Talking about the galactic nudes we just got from the James Webb Telescope. Ooh la la. Hopefully I'll have those up there in the middle of the show title. And today I'm going to be going over some cool science news for you guys real quick. Um, here's a major step forward for organ biofabrication. And well, I guess to start it off, we'll talk about some, uh, astronomy science. That'd be a, a cooler way to do things. We'll keep things kind of concise or germane. Um, so we're going to talk here about asteroid surfaces. Uh, asteroid Bennu. We have new insights about the surface structure of asteroid Bennu. The Osiris Rex data indicates surface near subsurface rubble is loosely bound. That makes sense. So I always kind of suspected um so yeah it looks like the rubble on the edges of these asteroids is relatively loosely bound because there's not a whole lot of, it's more like a rubble pile of an asteroid because there's not a whole lot of gravity going on not a whole lot of internal molten lava so that makes a lot of sense but it's kind of cool that we're able to detect that with our new instruments and now i'm going to read one about a new dinosaur with tiny arms and if anyone has any questions or comments or recommendations, feel free to just throw them at me. Um, gonna blow through these real quick before we get to the interesting stuff. A new giant dinosaur gives insight into why many prehistoric meat eaters had such tiny arms. Discovery provides insight about the evolutionary anatomy of big carnivorous dinosaurs from the University of Minnesota from July 7th, 2022. A team co-led by a University of Minnesota Twin Cities researcher, Peter Makoviki, and Argentinian colleagues uh, have discovered a new huge meat-eating dinosaur dubbed uh, Meraxis gigas. The new dinosaur provides clues about the evolution and biology of dinosaurs such as the Carcharodontosaurus and Tyrannosaurus rex specifically. Why these animals had such big skulls and tiny arms. Um, the researchers initially discovered Meraxis in Patagonia in 2012 and have spent the last several years extracting, preparing, analyzing the specimen. Dinosaur is part of the Chicharodontosauride family, group of giant, giant carnivorous theropods. So let's see what they found. The neat thing is that we found the body plan is surprisingly similar to Tyrannosaurus rex. Um, one of them. They're not particularly closely related to T-Rex. They're from very different branches of the meat-eating dinosaur family tree. So having this new discovery allowed us to probe the question of why do these meat-eating dinosaurs get so big and have these dinky little arms? The discovery of this new uh, Carcharodontosaurid the most complete up to now gives an outstanding opportunity to learn about their system systematics, paleobiology, and true size like never before. So with the statistical data that Meraxis provided, the researchers found that a large mega predatory dinosaurs in all three families of theropods grew in similar ways as they evolved. Their skulls grew larger and their arms progressively shortened. The possible uses for, of the tiny forelimbs in T-Rex and other large carnivorous dinosaurs have been the topic of much speculation and debate. What we're suggesting is that there's a different take on this, uh, Makoviki said. We shouldn't worry so much about what the arms are being used for because the arms are actually being reduced as a consequence of the skulls becoming massive. 
whatever the arms may or may not have been used for, they're taking on a secondary function since the skull is being optimized to handle larger prey. Okay, so this makes total sense. So as these dinosaurs are taking on larger prey, they need larger heads. And as they lead, as they need larger heads, they need better balance. And so their arms are reducing in size. And that is totally awesome and totally explains why T-Rex has tiny arms. What an amazing story. I honestly did not expect that dinosaur story to be that cool. But fuck yeah, dude. How about that for evolution? And I'm going to drop a link to that article for you guys in the comments, just in case you guys want to further investigate that research. Um, I don't know if you just popped in, Andrew, but we found out that T-Rex has tiny arms because his head was becoming so heavily in the evolutionary sense um, for eating larger prey that he had to make up for that by sacrificing some front arm weight. And on to the next article here. Let's see what we have. Uh, uh, we have two really cool articles. So I think I will start with this one first about organ biofabrication, which is really good news because, as you know, we have a black organ market, which is absolutely terrifying. And so all the work we could do towards organ biofabrication would absolutely mitigate the fucking terrifying reality of the black organ trade. So by recreating a helical structure of heart muscles, researchers improve understanding of how the heart beats this is from July 8th of 2022 from Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and heart disease. As you know, the leading cause of death in the U.S. is also deadly in part because of the heart, unlike because the heart, unlike other organs, cannot repair itself after injury. That's why tissue engineering, ultimately including the whole cell fabrica fabrication of an entire human heart for transplant, it's so important for the future of cardiac medicine. To build a human heart from the ground up, researchers need to replicate the unique structures that make up the heart. This includes recreating helical geometries, which create a twisting motion as the heart beats. It's been long theorized this twisting motion is critical for pumping blood at high volumes by providing, by proving that has been, uh, sorry, but proving that has been difficult in part because um, creating hearts with different geometries and alignments has been challenging. Now, bioengineers from Harvard A. Johnson Ball Engineering uh, developed the first biohybrid mo model of human ventricles with helically aligned beating cardiac cells and have shown the muscle alignment does in fact dramatically increase how much blood the ventricle can pump with each contraction. This advancement was made possible using a new method of additive textile manufacturing focused rotary jet spinning or FRJS, which enabled a, the high enabled the high throughput fabrication of helically aligned fibers with diameters ranging from several micrometers to hundreds of nanometers developed by ICs biophysics group research published in science work roots in centuries old mystery in 19 I'm sorry in 1669 English physician Richard Lower a man who counted John Locke among his colleagues and King Charles II among his patients first noted the spiral-like arrangement of heart muscles in his seminal work, Tactus de Cord. Over the next three centuries, physicians and scientists have built a more comprehensive understanding of the heart's structure, but the purpose of those spiraling muscles has remained a frustrate has remained frustratingly hard to study. In 1969, Edward Salin, former chair of the Department of Biomathematics at the University of Alabama Birmingham Medical School, argued the heart's helical alignment is critical to achieving large ejection fractions. 
the percentage of how much blood the ventricle pumps with each contraction. Our goal is to build a model where we can test Salin's hypothesis and study the relative importance of the heart's helical structure. And to test the theory, they used FRJS system to control the alignment of spun fibers on which they could grow cardiac cells. There's a lot of how they did it. After spinning the ventricles, after spinning, the ventricles were sealed with rat uh, cardiomyocyte or human stem cell derived cardiomyocyte. Uh, cardiomy- cardiomyocyte cells. Um, within about a week, several thin layers of beading tissue covered the scaffold with the cells following the alignment of the fibers beneath. The beading ventricles mimicked the same twisting or ringing motion present in human hearts. Researchers compared the ventricle deformation speed of electrical signaling and ejection fraction between ventricles made from helical aligned fibers and those made from circum differentially aligned fibers they found on every front the helically aligned tissue outperformed the circumferentially aligned tissue so how about that pretty cool i'll just drop that um source for you guys in the comments in case anyone is needing to access that information and there you go we have one last cool article i'm going to drop here um for you guys it is about let's see pretty cool article about how sound reduces pain in mice um perfect one to end with a nice cool one so i imagine mice listening to cool music just being like ah yeah man when it hits you you feel no pain so how sound reduces pain in mice Newly identified brain circuits may point to more effective pain therapies. This is so great with the fentanyl crisis we're going through. 13-year-olds on Facebook dropping like flies. Um, NIH, National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research, dropped this one on July 7th, 2022. And an international team of scientists has identified the neural mechanisms through which sound blunts pain in mice. The findings, which could inform development of safer methods to treat pain, were published in Science. The study was led by researchers at the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research, or NIDCR, the University of Science and Technology of China, Heifai, and Anhui Medical University, Heifai, China, NIDCR is part of the National Institutes of Health. We need more effective methods of managing acute and chronic pain, and that starts with gaining a better better understanding of the basic neural processes that regulate pain. Um, by uncovering the circuitry that mediates the pain-reducing effects of sound in mice, this study adds critical knowledge that could ultimately inform new approaches for pain therapy. Dating back to 1960, studies in humans have shown that music and other kinds of sound can help alleviate acute and chronic pain, including pain from dental and medical surgery, labor and delivery, and cancer. However, the brain produces this pain reduction or analgesia was less clear. Human brain imaging studies have implicated certain areas of the brain in music-induced analgesia. But these are only associations. That was the co-senior author, Wan Yun, Kevin, uh, Yu, PhD, at Stadman, tenure track investigator at NIGR. And, and anyway, he goes on uh, that in animals, we can fully explore and manipulate the circuitry to identify the neural substrates involved. 
These researchers exposed mice with inflamed paws to three types of sound, a pleasant piece of classical music, an unpleasant rearrangement of the same piece, and white noise. Surprisingly, all three types of sound when played at a low intensity relative to background noise about the level of a whisper reduced pain sensitivity in the mice. Higher intensities of the same sounds had no effect on the animal's pain responses. We were really surprised that the intensity of sound and not the category or perceived pleasantness of the sound would matter. To explore the brain circuitry underlying this effect, the researchers used non-infectious viruses coupled with fluorescent proteins to trace connections between brain regions. They identified a route from the auditory cortex, which receives the process receives and processes information about sound to the thalamus, which acts as a relay station for sensory uh, signals, including pain from the body and freely moving mice, low intensity white noise reduced, reduced the activity of neurons at the receiving end of the pathway in the thalamus in the absence of sound suppressing the pathway with light and small molecule based techniques mimic the pain blunting effects of low intensity noise who says unclear if similar brain processes are involved in humans or whether aspects of sound such as perceived harmony and pleasantness are important for human pain relief. We don't know if human music means anything to rodents, but it has many different meanings to humans. You have a lot of emotional confidence. The results could give scientists a starting point for studies to determine whether the animal findings apply to humans and ultimately could inform development of safer alternatives to opioids for treating pain. The research was supported by NIDCR, Division of Intramural Research. And I'm going to drop the source of the study for you dudes here. If you ever have a hard time getting this information, remember you can always just email the people who are working on it. They're happy to share it with you for free. There's OpenSci.com. Lots of cool resources out there for us to share knowledge and wisdom like this. And here's just a couple examples for you guys. And, oh, dang it. There, what's up, Andrew? I hope I didn't leave you hanging too long. What? I'm going to let you come up and ask some questions or make some comments before I go. Hey. Hey, you're good. Um, I wasn't waiting too long. Right I was on. just thinking about that um, study with the mice. I think that it's pretty... I mean, I'm not like a... Uh, you know, world famous rock star scientist type of person, but I did do some research on crows in my time in university. And what we, I, what I was doing was assisting in an experiment that actually, since you have crow in your name, you should check out if you don't already, do you know John yeah. Marsloff? I'm sorry, one more time. John Marsloff. Maybe drop his name in the comments for me. Yeah, sure. He's a, a researcher on um, the entire family of crows. Ovids. Yeah. Let me see. Into I don't remember it. if his name has one Z or... Oh, yeah, there we go. Cool. Um, but he uh, he's done a lot of those studies about the ability for crows to recognize the faces of individual humans... He's done a lot of experiments on their memory and um, recall of places where they'll cache food for the winter and things like that. He's shown that they have really high brain plasticity and all these interesting experiments. But he's also done all these 
experiments trying to show if crows do social learning. And so what we were testing was if, if a crow um, watches another crow solve a puzzle, will they solve it relative, like on average, will those crows that got to watch first, will they solve it in less tries? And mm-hmm. what I noticed while we were doing this research and while I was helping with the experiment is that what the crows react to like far more than anything else was the human presence in the aviary. So we captured these crows from a wild roost um, in the north, a little ways north of Seattle. It's a really giant crow roost that has like a minimum of 15,000 crows every winter. And I think that what I realized is that pretty much you should throw out the results of of these particular um, experiments and maybe not all experiments in captivity, but the majority, I would say, like, especially if you're testing something like social behavior, the crows were, you know, crows can normally peck at each other. They can nuzzle their mate or their, um, their offspring. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they can do all kinds of complex behaviors in a free environment, but in the environment we were studying them in, they were individually caged Mm -hmm. and, um, and then for some experiments, they were brought into an even smaller cage. And then we would like, we, <laughs> it was just so crazy thinking back on it. Like I have so much respect for John and all the people that were working in his lab, but I do, I do just think it was odd that I was the only person to think about like, Hey, is this even like really valid data? If we are you know, drastically changing the social environment. That's what I really hate about academia is it seems that someone's ego gets in the way of real science so often. Oh no. Lost power. (laughs) I can still hear you. Are you there? Oh boy. I heard Brady's phone charge up. So maybe, maybe I'll hold it down for a couple of minutes. Uh, I'll try and just post a couple studies from John, but my point is for, um, whenever Brady comes back. My basic point is that with the mice study, studying a pain response is interesting. I imagine that they are studying it uh, for, in, a, in a multiple ways. So one could be like a f- physical reaction. Obviously, mammals, most, uh, most animals, you can, you can assume they've felt some pain by a, a physical kind of knee-jerk sort of reaction. Um, but I, my guess is for these experiments, and I'll, I'll read the link later, but my guess is they had them wired or or even were doing brain scans so that they could see, like, it does the, the region of their brain that they associate with a pain response light up um, in their scan in that it's active. And my, my guess is that's how they're doing it. And, like, if you have to have this mouse... Um, injected with a tracer and then scanned, or if you constantly have them under a brain scan and then you're kind of inflicting pain on them. I mean, there's so many, um, things that you're doing that are, that are, that could be compounding. They could have compounding effects. There could be crossover pain. Even if you're accurately measuring a pain response in the brain of the animal, you could be, um, you could be measuring a pain response from something that's, you know, not the, not a controlled uh, variable in your experiment. Um, anyways, hopefully, yeah, I'm guessing Brady's phone is going to take a minute to charge back up. So 
Um, anyways, it's just the two of us. <laughs> so I'm just putting in a short link from uh, um, YouTube. This is just a short video with um, John after a release of one of his books around a decade ago. Um, this one is an older one. This one, when is this from? Yeah, 2009, this paper I'm putting in. Um, this one is about the lasting facial recognition of crows with threatening people. Um, they, they can, you know, crows can live easily 20 to 30 years and potentially longer in the wild. Um, and so not only can they remember you for all that time, but if they see you again, uh, in a group, they will tell each other, Oh, that guy's a total asshole. He threw a rock at me one time. (laughs) Uh, they'll poop on your car. They'll poop on you. They'll they'll swoop at you. Most most diving or swooping that crows will do will happen during the <clears throat> the nesting season, um, which is which is really common with a lot of birds. I know people who have been strafed by an owl uh, once or twice in in parks when they're running, kind of in the early morning. But it's always like nesting season. That's most of the time. If you get if you get kind of dive bombed by a crow, most likely it's because you're close to their nest and you didn't realize it, and they're giving you warnings, but you're like didn't realize there were warnings. You're like, why are those crows freaking out? Um, but sometimes, uh, if you're particularly malicious to the crows, they will they will really come after you anytime you come near. Um, so when we were going out to capture crows for these experiments, we would wear masks most of the time so that we're not <laughs> recognizable because we're we're in an area where we might travel frequently and you don't want to get pooped on every time you go there. Um, well, I, I gotta go, uh, pretty soon here, but Brady, if you come back, uh, hope you found that interesting. I found your other articles interesting. I'm going to check out the one on the mice and the, and the dinosaurs. Oh, one other thing I'll say this whole, um, when they're talking about grafting tissue onto the, uh, like a, I can't remember what they called it, a lattice or matrix that they're making into a helical structure for the hearts. They've done this in other contexts with other organs. <clears throat> and they also are growing organs on mice and rats. It's called like a chimera experiment. Um, I do see a lot of potential value in that, like could, could be really helpful. Um, but a lot of these experiments when they're doing um, chimera experiments where they're growing like human tissue on a rat or something in a lab setting, most often they're just testing pharmaceuticals on it. Um, and these pharmaceuticals are most often just redundant pills. And by that, I mean, there's already a, a existing medicine drug that can do a very similar thing, if not identical thing for you, but they're just, they've run out of patent protections or one company wants to have an alternative to another company's that's already locked down by patent protections. And so it's just a lot of extremely for-profit nonsense. So occasionally you do see some good stuff slip through with the NIH or the NIAD, but, um, yeah, I think there's just so many ways that we can reconfigure our healthcare system. I mean, almost every single part of it is, is harmful to people who most need healthcare. Um, and a lot of times this kind of lab research is, is not an exception. It's often done for 
you know, if if there was just like a national referendum, a vote on like how should we be spending, you know, all of the tax dollars, billions of dollars we put towards medical research and medicine and healthcare every year, most people would put the stuff that we actually spend it on right now all the way at the bottom of the list of priorities, and put it more into like, you know, how do we how do we actually have a supply of organs that doesn't come from human trafficking? Um, how do we get people who are on kidney dialysis to have a transplant and also get all the other people who aren't on dialysis to have a transplant? Or is there enough supply? Um, anyways, uh, I'm going to just shut up there. Brady, I hope you listen to this later. Catch you later. Yo. What's going on, dudes? I had no intention of actually starting this room. This totally happened on accident. So I guess I might as well throw a show up, huh? Tried to do one yesterday and uh, my phone died. So maybe my phone is just like kicking me back into the show. Yeah, it looks like it's 12 hours long. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so I'm going to go back and try to edit this show. And does anyone have any questions? I can't believe this room is going. I wonder what you guys talked about. <laughs> Let's see if there's anything in the comments. Oh, wow. <laughs> cool. Oh, you poor guy. Just. Um. <laughs> All right, I'm going to end the room and wrap it up, see if we can post it. Jesus.